soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. On June 6, 1944, more than 150,000 Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy in what would become the turning point of World War II. As we mark the 78th anniversary of D-Day, we turn to our featured guest, Shalom Lamb, CEO of Operation Benjamin to discuss the work he's leading to make sure every Jewish American soldier buried in a battlefield cemetery has the proper grave market. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. Welcome back, Rich Goldberg. And I'm really excited to report that uh, Rich Goldberg, after doing this podcast for going on two years now, have actually met in person for the first time. Well, I I don't know that people know this about us, uh, Jared. Uh, We've never really been open kimono because you can't really see us. You just assume we're brothers because we act like it, we talk like it. It sounds like we grew up together. It feels like it by now, I'll tell you that. But here's here's the truth, okay? Are you guys ready for some truth? This is some truth coming at you. Uh, you know, not not a ministry of truth, just just a podcast of truth. And and that is we've never met until just about 2 weeks ago. We did not meet the entire time we've been doing this podcast. This has been a COVID creation virtually bringing you Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast from multiple cities, sometimes multiple countries. Wherever we go, there we are, right there on your podcast dial. And now Jared and I have met. We have met. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, Rich, listen, I'm really excited for this week's guest because it's a very personal topic to me. Uh, I had a grandfather who landed at Normandy uh, D plus a week. I had another grandfather who fought fought with General MacArthur in the Philippines. And in fact, uh, my aunt just uncovered one of those records that they got to make and send home. Um, like a letter home that they were doing in those days. And I'm really excited. I haven't listened to it yet. It was just uncovered yesterday afternoon and we're having it digitized. And so I'm really excited to hear that. But I got to tell you, I traveled to France for Thanksgiving, one of the great Thanksgiving destinations of the world this past Thanksgiving. Classic. Classic, classic. And being the history buff that I and the rest of my family are, we took a day trip to Normandy. And I got to tell you, it is powerful. To, to first to get picked up at the train station by the guide and everywhere you see, you know, you think of Normandy as a very sort of compact area, but it's really a whole region of France. And everywhere you go, you see effects of this, this great battle, this great turning point. Uh, even the young people who are in their 20s treat it like it's very much a current event. And we're able to talk with great detail about what had happened, what units were where, what the obstacles were, what towns burned, what towns didn't burn, and which led us ultimately to 
the the American Cemetery in Normandy where you can actually look out at Omaha Beach, look out at Gold and Sword Beaches and have a a sense of calm, a sense of peace, but a sense of reverence for where you are. And then you get back in the car and you go over to Point du Hoc and you, you see where these rangers scaled a sheer cliff face to take out some German 88s, which turned out weren't there. But they, sh- they scaled this sheer cliff face because they were the linchpin of the entire invasion. And, you know, to this day, my seven-year-old asked questions about, about the soldiers who scared, scaled the rock. I think it's someplace that all Americans should try and get to. When you're visiting Europe, it's a little bit out of the way from Paris, but it is well worth the trip. And I'll share a couple of stories. One is when I was on Capitol Hill, uh, former Senator Kirk uh, was the Republican lead on the Military Construction Veteran Affairs Subcommittee of Appropriations. And one of the little-known commissions uh, that we have gets its money, gets its appropriations out of that subcommittee, and it's the American Battle Monuments Commission. Uh, And this is a a very special, not very well-known U.S. government commission established uh, by Congress back in 1923. And these are people who are appointed, uh, who, who are passionate about caring for the American GI dead. Uh, for all American service members who died in a battle ended up being buried in a battlefield cemetery anywhere in the world. The U.S. government continues to care for those cemeteries, uh, keep it up, make sure everything is taken care of. It's an amazing and amazing thing. We, you know, In, in Jewish uh, life uh, and law, we're taught that what you do for somebody after uh, they have died, right? that burial ritual itself, is the ultimate kindness it's the ultimate charity because it can never be repaid once somebody has left the earth and the idea that we do have americans and we actually have a commission dedicated to continuing to pay forward to those who made the ultimate sacrifice going back to the civil war forward uh, and overseas um, so really special and to be able to spend some time with the people who, who run that when i was on capitol hill was, was very eye-opening. And I will tell you, Rich, um, I don't know if you know this, but I am a little bit of a uh, challenge coin collector. And one of my prized... I did cha- not know that. Yeah, yeah. One of my prized... I got some challenge coins for you. Do oh. you like patches? I got squadron patches. Uh, squadron patches, okay. But challenge coins, you know... Um, yeah, not as cool as squadron patches. Uh, so so I have a one of the most prized parts of my challenge coin collection is the American Battlefield Monuments challenge coin. And what's interesting about it, and, and if, uh, if our technical wizards in the back can, can help figure this out, is that it is a picture of a... Uh, American cemetery, and it has rows and rows and rows of crosses, but it actually does have a Jewish star on the challenge coin. Hmm. Operation Benjamin was created after Jacob Schachter, an Orthodox rabbi and professor at Yeshiva University, was leading a tour of a cemetery in Normandy, France in 2013. You could have been on that tour, Jared, uh, if you had just gone a few years earlier. While there, Rabbi Schachter looked around and thought the number of stars of David seemed low to him. And today we have its CEO, Shalom Lamb, CEO of Operation Benjamin, who has spearheaded the effort to make sure that every Jewish service member gets a Jewish grave marker. Shalom, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, first off, tell us about 
the genesis of Operation Benjamin. I saw this story in the Washington Post recently and New York Times, and I was fascinated. But tell us, for, for those of our listeners who haven't read the stories, what's the genesis and how, how you got there? The genesis of Operation Benjamin is an insight at a moment in time. It was actually serendipitous. Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter, Harvard PhD in history, very, very well-known uh, Jewish scholar, history historian. Uh, he was leading a tour of historians to France, to southern France in 2014. It's the 70th anniversary of D-Day. And the group is near Normandy and decides what an important thing to do. Let's go visit rural Americans. Now, Rabbi Schachter has a particular sensitivity to World War II soldiers. His father, Herschel Schachter, very famously was a Jewish chaplain with the U.S. Army and was one of the liberators of Buchenwald, of the Buchenwald concentration camp. Totally changed his life. And Rabbi Schachter grew up with these stories uh, of these and the relationship with World War II soldiers. They're walking through Normandy. Anybody who's either seen Saving Private Ryan or has actually been to one of these cemeteries knows that they are overwhelming, hallowed ground, tens of thousands of crosses, incredibly neat rows. And the cemetery is broken with the Jewish stars that are sort of jutting out. And he's walking through and saying to himself, I just don't think the number's right. It was just this sort of incohate insight that he had. And he didn't say anything, but it bothered him. And I've, I've known Robert Schachter. We've been very dear friends for many years. Sees me at a, a, a party on a Saturday night about three months later. And he says to me, I just came back from Normandy. It's unbelievable. It's so moving. I just don't think none, the number's right. And I, I don't know, for some reason, it struck a chord with me by training of a military historian. And it, it just uh, something struck a chord. I guess I'm a little bit OCD, went to, uh, went home that night, and I, I just was dying to know how many Jewish stars are there at, at Normandy. And it, it actually wasn't so simple to figure it out, but the answer was there are 149. There are about 9,500 USGIs buried in the Normandy Military Cemetery. And if you just do the math, there should be, 2.7% of them should be Jewish. That should be around 260. Well, there are 149. Where are the missing Jews? We had no idea. And we we hadn't even thought it was a problem. Who knew? Uh, nobody thought about it uh, that I'm aware. Um, and so we started just kicking around theories, all of which were wrong. Uh, and we said, hey, let's do a thought experiment. Let's take a soldier with a Jewish sounding name. It's almost em embarrassing to say how we did this. It's uh, It sounds wrong. But we just picked a guy named Benjamin Karadetsky, and which is why it's Operation Benjamin. And um, I, I didn't know anything about genealogy and as smart as he is, Rabbi Schachter didn't either. So it happens to be my my son's wife's father is Steve Lamar, wonderful guy, uh, a Washington, D.C. lobbyist, and also a really good armchair genealogist. So the three <laughs> of us got together and we said, hey, let's let's try to figure out this this guy. And we did. Turns out that Benjamin Garadetsky was born in Zhitoma, Russia. Came, when he was six, they came to the Bronx. And his parents, crazy enough, were buried about 10 minutes from my home in West Hempstead, New York. And so I went on a hot date with my wife to the cemetery to see, hey, are the parents Jewish? Well, it's a totally Jewish cemetery. We found his predeceased sister who all Jewish, everything about it is Jewish. Jewish, 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 Jewish. Why is he buried under a cross? We couldn't figure it out. And finally, we gathered up all this ton of information and we called the American Battle Monuments Commission. We said, hey, a mistake's been made. And we figured we had discovered the cure to cancer or something because we assumed they would embrace us and say, oh, my God, you found a mistake. It wasn't anything like that at all. I just want to fast forward and say 
We have an unbelievable relationship now with the American Battle Monuments Commission. These are people with a calling. They love what they do. They are seekers of truth. Um, and every American should be proud by, of the job they do. But that first call didn't go so well. So, uh, Shalom, to, sure. to kind of drill down on that a little bit more. Sure. W what was it like when you walked into the, the federal government and said, we think you messed this up? <laughs> uh, you know, and and we will we will asterisk and citate or cite that they you have a great relationship now. But what what was it like originally? It was scary uh, because our operating assumption was going to was that it's the U.S. government and they're going to say you know the U.S. government never makes a mistake. You know how dare you? It wasn't anything like that. We we called them up and a guy sort of gave us a little bit of a cold shoulder. It, it really wasn't all that exciting. Um, but we were persistent and we also had done so much research that I think it finally came through that we were serious and had no alter ulterior motive. Um, and we did get to the right people ultimately. And they, they gave us great guidance. And the, the guidance was that you needed to prove it through primary material. The bar is very, very high to change a headstone, which we think, by the way, is appropriate. These are very important existential things. But here's the kicker. No matter how good our research was, it didn't matter because a family member has to make the request. These young men who were killed didn't have kids. If they had a sister, go find somebody whose last name has changed all these decades ago in an age before computers. It was really tough. And we were sort of uh, really uh, downtrodden because we couldn't find a, a relative. So we took a Hail Mary pass because we ran out of options. We actually took out an ad in the Jewish Week in New York that basically said, we're genealogists. We're looking for this family. Here's two or three things you may want to know. We didn't mention anything about Normandy and said, does anybody know who this family is? Weeks go by, nothing. About three, four weeks later, a paralegal calls up and says, hey, I did some estate work for a family of that name. He's a doctor in St. Louis and she belongs to a conservative synagogue. Those were the two clues. So my brother-in-law is a doctor in St. Louis and I called him and it turns out he's in the same hospital with this physician. And we traced him and he knocked on his door or I left him a message and nothing happened. He, it, it didn't seem to make a wave. But then I started calling every conservative synagogue in St. Louis and I found the rabbi of this family and I said, hey, would you give me the number of this family so I can call him? I got great news. And he said, don't be ridiculous. I'm not giving you anybody's number. Uh, he said, but what I will do, since you sound sincere, is I'll tell them what you've told me and maybe they'll call you back. And about a month later, I got a call in my car, and I said, I'm Dr. Littman, and I'm a nephew of, uh, of this soldier. And um, he told us, actually, in 1986, they tried to get it changed, couldn't do it. Uh, and uh, they actually are one of the rare families that knew that there's, their uh, relative was buried under a cross. Um, and we were persistent. It took us a little over two years with the American Battle Monuments Commission. And finally, in June 2018, um, we had that headstone changed in an amazing ceremony. Family was there. So moving. Unbelievable. But the important part about that is we discovered two things. One is that the American Battle Monuments Commission actually was taking us seriously, appreciated the immense amount of research we did. And the second thing is that this was not a one-off issue. We discovered that there were hundreds and hundreds of soldiers who were mistakenly buried during the war. Those are two huge pieces of information. Can I just ask sort of on the religious side of the equation here? Because I assume that there are some sort of Jewish law implications to all of this when you're handling this and figuring out. And then what do you do? Is, is there, there perhaps were never actual burial rites um, when these people were buried. Is, is that something that, that 
can still happen today? Is is there? I, I I'm I'm aware of a lot of things in Jewish law, and I did go to day school um, and study a lot, but I actually don't know this piece of Jewish law. <laughs> so there there are a lot of implications. Um, what the important things is that you want to say a kelmale rachmim, which is this the the standard issue, very beautiful prayer for the dead. That hadn't happened to to most of these soldiers. You want to say kaddish with a minion. I mean, saying kaddish with ten people. Uh, at a grave, that's an incredibly moving experience. It's a declaration. Kaddish, most people don't re- don't know, really doesn't say anything about people who died. It's just an expression of belief in God. No matter what happened, we still affirm that God created the world, that God is the God of history. Those are, are really important things. And for a family to know that a soldier gave his life, and not only was he buried on, not only did a Kamala Rahman never get set, not only was Kaddish never said, but he's been buried for eternity under a cross, under a simple not symbol not his own. Now, I, you know, so let me go sort of back for a second. People ask, so can you move the bodies? Can you send them to the United States, send them to Israel? And the answer is no. Um, in 1950 or 1951, all of these sites became national monuments. You can't move anybody. That That's not happening. The best we can do, and it is huge, is to change the headstone to make sure that that soldier is acknowledged for who he was in life. Think about it. Soldier goes out there, gives all ultimate sacrifice, but loses his own ability to speak for himself. All we're doing is picking up that flag and saying, here I am. This is who I was. And we're we're doing that acknowledgement. Shalom, you, you mentioned it uh, at the top when you talked about the origin story of Operation Benjamin, but uh, I want to dig a little deeper. How widespread do you think this issue is uh, in American cemeteries? So I'll give you some we now have been doing this long enough that we think we've got some pretty good data. Uh, again, it's a, it's certainly a guesstimate, but I think it's a really educated guesstimate at this point. Rabbi Schachter and I and our, our chief genealogist, a very brilliant woman named Rachel Silverman, um, and Steve Lamar, all of us together, um, think that the number of World War II soldiers is somewhere around 450 to 550 who are incorrectly buried. And World War I soldiers, we think there's something north of 300. And we actually think we can, we can, knowing what we know now, knowing the process, we think we can get to them. We think we can do that. And and how many like how how are you doing against that potential goal? Um, and you're starting to ramp up, or or is it you know? Tell us about how that's going. So we have 19 soldiers that have been approved for headstone replacements. Um, 16 of those have already occurred. We have uh, two in France and one in Manila, Philippines, left to change that have already been changed. We've already done six in Manila. Uh, we did five in one day and then uh, one in a separate day. Um, and uh, we have 27 others now that we're deep into investigations. These are deep uh, detailed investigations require a lot of primary material. There's a lot of paper pushing uh, that goes into this. Um, and then uh, we have some that are, are really straightforward and simple and some that are really complicated. You know, this a couple articles came out about us recently because we just came back from a mission. We were chained seven hoods, replaced seven headstones in four cemeteries in three countries in two days. Uh, 45 people went. It was just amazing. And it got a lot of press coverage. So all of a sudden, the last two weeks, we've been getting I mean, dozens of inquiries of people are saying, hey, my brother-in-law, I'm 83 years old. My brother-in-law was killed. I have no idea where he's buried. Uh, can you help me find him? Uh, or my, we just got one yesterday. My, my uncle was killed in the war. He's buried under a cross. Help me. 
Um, and we got another one uh, probably a week ago uh, that said my my brother-in-law had no other family other than us. He was killed in the war. His mother committed suicide after he was killed. I have no idea where he's buried. Can you tell me if he's buried under Drew's star? It would kill me if he wasn't. End of story, he is. And, and we were able to find that out pretty quickly. A lot of these things, we actually know how to do this well enough now that we can answer these questions pretty quickly. Some of them, though, are head scratchers. We, we don't know the answer. We're, we're really working on it. Can you, for our listeners, you talked about your expertise in, in Jewish military history. I'm actually very curious about that. I, I'm a Jew who served in the military uh, and served in Afghanistan. Talk a little bit about the history of Jews in the U.S. military. Where where have we been? Where, where have we gone? What wars have we seen? So first of all, thank you for your service. I think that's an important thing to acknowledge and say. Um, so we've been everywhere. We, um, you go back to the to the earliest times, just on this mission, and it's funny. It's it's a wonderful question to have been asked right now on one of these missions that we uh, that we just had um, on the twenty sixth of April. We replaced the headstone of Everett Satius Jr. Everett Satius, uh, it's not your typical, uh, it's not Goldberg or Steinberg. He was a Sephardic Jew from the Spanish and Portuguese tradition. His family came to the United States five years before George Washington was born. They're one of the original American families. And just that family alone, emblematic of of all of uh, American Jewish military history, have fought in every war uh, that America's fought. So back to the Revolutionary War, uh, he had uh, an ancestor who died in the Civil War. The, the um, a tremendous number of the family fought in the War of 1812. Uh, World War I, Everett was killed in World War II. So it, th- the involvement has really been enormous. And in fact, um, his relative alone during the Revolutionary War, um, his, uh, his ancestor five grandfathers ago, um, split the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in New York. The, the congregation, half of them were loyalists, half of them were not. And, um, and uh, he led the revolutionaries, and he actually had to leave and go to Philadelphia. Um, he believed that the fate of America and the fate of the Jewish people were one. To him, this was a religious war. Um, and he was an extraordinary character. And here it is, his great-great-great-grandson was killed in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. He was a Columbia Law School graduate and um, was killed in, uh, killed in the war. And for 75 years, an only child buried under a cross until two weeks ago. Shalom. Tell me if this is an urban legend or not, but I was always told that uh, in Chinatown in New York, the old Addis Israel, uh, oh, sorry, the old Spanish and Portuguese cemetery contained the remains of some of George Washington's Jewish troops. True or false? Yes. True. True. Okay. Uh, If you go every Memorial Day, the Spanish Portuguese synagogue runs a very, very beautiful ceremony uh, down uh, down the lower 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 Manhattan. Um, it's it's open to the public. It's beautiful. It's truly meaningful. And if you want to go back to the roots and say we as Jews have been part and parcel of the development, the the construction of this. Uh, experiment of this incredible experiment called democracy from the begin- very beginning. That's really where the origins are. We fought and bled with everybody else. And how long do you think, you know, if, if, if the goal is to get every last Jew who's buried under a cross, not buried under a cross, how long do you think that this is going to take? Obviously, uh, you know, it's lots of variables, but how long do you think it'll take? 
So lots of variables. At the current rate we're going, uh, when we're done, I've calculated I will be 406 years old. Um, the, 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 okay. The, the truth is we are searching for funding. We are. Uh, that's not the purpose of this podcast, but we are. Because all we need to do, now that we know how to do this, and, and I'm, I'm happy to say and comfortable saying, we're actually good at what we do now. We understand how this works. We just need more professional genealogists, more more people to push that paper. Um, and then the the slow part, the hard part, believe it or not, um, aside from all that expertise, is contacting the families, having that conversation. That is a slow process. Sometimes families are thrilled. They've sort of been waiting on the phone for you, waiting. Why didn't you call 10 years ago? Others are just shocked and really don't know what to do about it. I think one of them was so moving. It was a this this incredibly lovely gentleman. I hope he's listening from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Such a, a sweet, sweet, sweet man who suffered over this decision. It was clear from us, the researchers, that this was an error. It was just a clerical error that this soldier, he was an aviator, was a second lieutenant, was buried under a cross. He was um, part of a famous crew. It was one of the last heavy bombers shot down in World War II. It was a B-17. Um, and it was clear to us why he was buried under a cross. It was clear how the mistake was made. This guy suffered. He kept saying, but how do I know that's not what he wanted? How do I know? Oh, my God, am I doing the right thing? It was such an existential angst, and it took months for him to come to that decision. Now he's, he's thrilled, and it's wonderful, and it's great. But I, I really suffered alongside, and you can't rush that process. We can rush a lot of things, but that process can't be rushed. What, what did a lot of these families think for all these years? What, what were they under certain other impressions? They just they had never visited to look themselves, or they had other stories, or they just figured lost, or what? What? what so the answer, the answer to that question is yes. Um, we have, but we do have some common themes. Here's some common themes that I think people will find really um, sort of uh, sad, interesting. Um, most of the time. They knew they had an uncle or a cousin or a grandfather killed in the war. But when they asked mom about it, mom would not be able to talk. She would just break down and cry. We hear this all the time. And it caused so much pain to mom that they couldn't ask anymore. They didn't want to cause the pain to mom. And therefore, nothing got passed down other than that faint memory. Because we're doing all this research, we're very often introducing the family to this relative, to this 19-year-old for the first time. And we're telling them all about his life and what he did and where he went to school and what his aspirations were, because we get that from the research. So I would say one common theme that we see very, very often is they had no idea. Other times is they did know, but they thought that nothing could be done about it. It's the military. It's the government. So there's nothing can be done about it. And in rare cases, they actually tried and couldn't do it for whatever reason, got the wrong person or whatever it was. And so they just sort of gave up. And we say, no, no, this can be done. You just have to do it right, and you have to play by the rules. And we think the rules make sense, by the way. I want to be clear about that. So so if you just approach it properly, have the right evidence, we can actually make this happen. And and, and the government wants it to happen. They want the truth. You know, Shalom, this is a, a really personal one to me. I had two grandfathers, one in the, in the Pacific Theater, one who was at the liberation of Buchenwald as a, as a liberator, Never had the chance to ask them what they wore, wore on their dog tags because I know that that was, particularly the European theater, a very complicated question for GIs. Um, do you ever get uh, sort of conversation about that? Uh, you know, that, that, question, that question alone is one for a whole podcast with lots of more learned people than Rich and I. 
It's huge. And um, imagine the guilt. You're you're about to go to war and you say to yourself, okay, what do I put on this dog tag? Do I put an H for Hebrew? Uh, used to be in the Civil War, you were, the Jews were called Israelites, then became Hebrew, now we're Jews. But it, it's sort of quaint. Uh, do you put an H for Hebrew? Or do I sort of um, is it okay to put P for Protestant or C for Catholic, even though that's almost a denial of myself and I'm going to fight for my people, but I'm going to do that because as a practical matter, that makes sense. And the question is, did it make sense? So I want to say definitively, we know through evidence now, 100% it made sense. It was a real problem. In fact, uh, Jewish GIs were separated from their comrades when they became POWs. Many were sent to the Berga concentration camp, which was a subcamp of Buchenwald. And um, they were, there was a mine there, a coal mine, and they were worked to death in that coal mine in horrific conditions. So... Um, uh, so I, I, I think it's clear it was the right thing to do, although the angst of doing that is something that's just unimaginable. So they put no religion, a P, a C, or a friendly sergeant before battle, if they did have an H, would say, hey, Goldstein, you need to bang that H out. And they would take the back of a Cobar knife or an M1 and, and literally deface their dog tag. Now the soldier gets killed. And, you know, what's a poor graves registration guy to do? What America did after the war to try to get this right is absolutely unbelievable. Let's, you know, Rich, you say you, you were in the service, you you were in Afghanistan. Did I did I hear you yeah, right? That's right? So think about this. We live in an amazing age. Most people don't really realize this. Two or three soldiers get killed in a conflict, and there are congressional investigations, and there's uh, newspapers are asking questions. How did this happen? And when you think about it, this is war. What do you mean? How did this happen? It's almost a staggering switch on what war was and how wonderful it is that we live in an age where military men fighting get killed and that causes an investigation. Let's go back 75 years. During America's involvement in World War II, 6,600 U.S. soldiers were killed every single month. Every month, 6,600 soldiers every month in an age before computers. Go follow that. Go for, and, and and you'll appreciate this. Uh, you know, soldiers were buried four, five, six, seven times in an age before computers. Go figure this out. And so the question really isn't why are there five hundred soldiers improperly buried. It's the other. How did they only have? 500 soldiers misread. And then people always ask, but didn't the families go visit and realize it? Didn't they say something? You know, again, let's go back to what the world was in the 1940s. 1945, 1947, 1948, war-torn Europe. There's poverty everywhere in Europe. You can't just hop on a plane. You've got to get on a ship and go there. That's for the wealthy. Most people back in America had to get their lives going again, had lost a child. They were first-generation Americans. They, you know, they worked as tailors, as, as belt makers, as button makers. They, they couldn't take that trip. They never knew. They really, and many times people signed forms. They had no idea how to read these things. It said cross. They had no idea. And so there's a lot of sadness here. And, and although there was a lot of sadness there, and we can't make up for that, when you're standing there and you see that cross removed, and I want to talk about that, and you see that Star of David put in its place, you can't help but burst with pride and say, wow, we just did something really, really, really great. Um, and two issues about that, because I think it's very important to say, I, the speech that I give at every one of these ceremonies is pretty much 
on the same theme is what's our relationship to the cross that we just removed? Because let's let's be very honest about this. We're very proud that we're putting on a Star of David, and I think that's a wonderful thing, but we're also removing another symbol. And it's very important that the people around us, the people who are at these cemeteries, the supervisors, the crews, the staff at the ABMC, people who just gawk and watch and, and visitors to the cemeteries who watch us need to know our deepest respect, our admiration for, we coined the term, the silent civil sentinel that stood guard over that soldier for 75 years. We're not throwing away a cross, God forbid. We have nothing but gratitude, if you will, to that stone that stood guard over that soldier for all those years. But what we're doing is, though, we're replacing it with a silent civil sentinel that's just more appropriate for that soldier. And I think it must be said, I mean, I go through files all the time of guys who turned out to be properly buried under crosses. That's not a, lo a loss. That's a win. That means we confirmed one. Good. That's a good thing. These were heroes. And, and if they're properly buried under crosses, that's great. That's right. And, and you know, that's a win also. Can, can I ask, we're focused obviously on Jewish uh, members of the service uh, and, and changing for them. Are there any other religions impacted by this? Are Muslims uh, impacted by this in any way or, or anybody else you've come across? It's a great question. In the foreign U.S. cemeteries, to the best of my knowledge, there are there are two symbols. There's a, a cross or a star of David. Uh, I've never seen a, a crescent. I, I don't know the answer. Um, so I, I just don't know the answer. But if I can flip it over a little bit, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll sort of segue to something interesting along the same lines. Um, the first commissioner of the, uh, of the ABMC 99 years ago was General John Pershing. He was Black Jack Pershing, a famous, amazing, much larger than life general of World War I. Just an extraordinary person. Uh, if you ever want to read a great biography, General Pershing is a great biography to read. Very complicated and, and incredibly tragic life and I, successful I don't, life. I, I, Shalom, I get rare moments to have Chicago history injected, which, which is my love. Uh, but for those uh, out there who remember Sinai 48, uh, Sinai, which later became Best Kosher, it was based on Pershing Road. On the south side of Chicago. <laughs> so there we go. Eight fans out there, Pershing Road, named for General Pershing. Go on, sorry. So, no, General Pershing was a great man. Here's one of the other things he was great for. Um, he decided that of the unknowns, of which there are many, I don't know the exact number, but there are many. Um, and when you see that, your heart breaks every single time. Here lies a soldier, uh, you know, one soldier, five soldiers, three soldiers, uh, you know, known but to God. Um, he wanted the number of unknowns to be buried in the same proportion of the men who fought. So if there were 2.7% or 3% or 4% of Jewish soldiers in World War I, he wanted 4% of the unknown markers to be Stars of David. And indeed, that's what happened. So that's what happens in World War I cemeteries, not in World War II cemeteries. World War II cemeteries, every unknown is buried under a cross except for one. There's only one unknown um, marker in all of the world that in World War II, that it's the Star of David, and that's in Manila, Philippines. I've tried to discover how that happened or why that is, and I, I don't have an answer. But I've been there, and I've seen it myself, and it's 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 quite a sight. Quite a sight. Wow. So you, you're, you've become quite the globetrotter. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's I mean, it's getting you into interesting places, that's for sure. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they say join the Army and see the world, or join the Navy and see the world. It's uh, it's join Operation Benjamin and see the world. I mean, just this, you know, just two weeks ago, we were in 
um, Epinal, France, Lorraine, France, Luxembourg, and the Ardennes, Belgium, um, just 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 for these soldiers. And um, in October, we hope to go back to Normandy and Brittany and Rhone, R-H-O-N-E, in southern France. And then in February, back to Manila. Uh, back to Manila. We, we already have one approved there. We're expecting another six, seven, eight by then. But there are hundreds in Manila that we're expecting. All right, Shalom. Ready? Are you ready for the lightning round? Lightning away, gentlemen. Okay. Favorite figure in Jewish American military history. And Rich Goldberg is not a good is not an appropriate answer. That's correct. <laughs> I wouldn't choose me either. Uh, wow, favorite favorite's a tough one. Uriah P. Levy probably. Uh, Uriah P. Levy was a Commodore, first Jewish Commodore of the Navy in the 1812. Very, very famous for taking an amazing stance. Uh, he outlawed flogging, and that was uh, that was extraordinary. He ended up buying uh, Monticello, which was um, Thomas Jefferson's home, and in fact, his wife is buried there. Amazing character in uh, American military Jewish history. Most uh, emotional or meaningful battlefield cemetery you have visited and why? Uh, every one of them. I would say Gettysburg in the United States for sure. Um, Normandy without question outside the United States with one exception. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two if you don't mind. No uh, one is Normandy. That cemetery is built on the bluffs. You're literally standing at the site of the battle. You can see Utah Beach. You can see Sword. You can see Juno. It, it's I mean, it's just overwhelming. So that would certainly be true. Uh, the second one, let's go to the Pacific Theater. No question about it. That's easy. Corregidor Island. You can stand on Corregidor Island. That's the place where MacArthur says, uh, I shall return. Um, that is the place where one of our soldiers uh, was killed. Uh, an amazing story about um, uh, Corporal Cordova, Sam Cordova, was one of the first U.S. soldiers killed in the Pacific Theater. Um, and he's one of the soldiers whose uh, headstone we changed. I got a great story for you on that. Um, uh, it is an amazing place because they haven't done anything to it since World War II. You walk onto a battlefield. It's as if the battlefield was yesterday. Um, you know, there's a famous, famous, famous photograph, black and white photograph of, you know, a hundred Japanese soldiers screaming bonsai on top of a, a cannon, a captured U.S. cannon. You can go to that cannon today. It is there. You can stand there looking at the photograph. It just sends chills up your spine. You go to the light tower on Corregidor Island and you look at Bataan, where the Bataan death march started with 60,000 U.S. soldiers. And you just, you cannot believe you're standing there and looking at this. It's unbelievable. Let me go back to one cemetery, okay? Aside from the Normandy Cemetery, something happened. I, I know there's a lightning round. I'm probably violating all the rules. It's, it's okay. It's okay. But, We're making But I'll violate one more. Um, at the ceremony for Everett Satius, an amazing thing happened. The family had the flag under which he was buried when he was interred. And they sent us the flag to bring to uh, Luxembourg, where he's buried. Remember, General Patton is buried in the same cemetery. And I said to the, uh, to the superintendent of the cemetery, he was a wonderful guy, uh, and I said, uh, what can we do with this flag to make this meaningful? I said, I know what we can do. As you walk to the cemetery, there's this enormous flagpole. And for the ceremony where we switched, the, replaced the headstone of Everett Satius, the flag flying above the cemetery was the Satius flag. It was, I mean, just sent chills up your spine. It was unbelievable. Okay, a couple, couple more quick ones. Best book on military history. 
Phew, that, that, that recovers entire world history. Can we narrow it down? Uh, uh, best book <laughs> on American military history? Uh, probably um, Battle Cry Freedom uh, by McPherson. It's a Civil War book. Uh, there, Classic. There's Classic. No, no better book on military history, American military history ever written as far as I'm concerned. What is your favorite place to eat in New York? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, the, yes. See, Rich, you're learning. I, I figured it out by now. I got it. I got so it. So I am really good at cemeteries. I'm really good at history. <laughs> I'm a horrible food critic. I, I'm a very boring eater. <laughs> Have you ever been to Izzy's in Crown Heights? He's going to say the YU Cafeteria. That, the that YU is Ca- his favorite place. That's his favorite oi, place. Oi, oi. Oi. Uh, YU Cafeteria is okay, but um, probably uh, uh, Grand on Essex or something like that. Whatever. Uh, Noah's Ark in Teaneck. Love that. Okay. Oh, there you go. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and we'll have you back again soon. And Hatzlacha uh, to you for all the amazing work you guys are doing. Operation Benjamin is operationbenjamin.org. Shalom, thank you so much. Guys, thanks very much. Be well. Thanks. Well, Rich, that was educational to say the least. Uh, and I feel like we just talked to somebody who's out there doing just truly Hashem's work, uh, to get people the right grave markers and get closure for a lot of these families. And I, what I I love about it, Jared is it's not just sort of the work itself and like, Oh, that's interesting. What an interesting concept. There's somebody who's working on changing out crosses for stars of David. That's nice. But every single one comes with history. Every single one comes with a story. Everyone comes with family emotions. Everyone comes with issues of faith uh, and and religion and implications. And uh, it's just, uh, it's amazing work. It's amazing work that I, I personally never heard about until now. Yeah, and I also love the fact that it all started with like some classic Jewish geography where it's like, you know, my cousin worked with somebody who was a doctor in the same hospital with a similar name. And I was like, that's that's very uh, typical of the American Jewish community, right? Well, if you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Most importantly, tell your friends, because as you know, that is the best recommendation we can get. This is Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.